Good morning. Happy Mother's Day to all the women in the house, all the moms in the house. I'm so glad to get to be with you guys today. I am on staff here, Liz Griffin, if we haven't met, and I'm the executive director of Unbound, which is our anti-human trafficking arm that we have at Antioch. And like J.D. mentioned earlier, we've been in this three-week series on spiritual mothers and fathers. Week one, J.D. interviewed Ron and Janine Parrish. And then last week, J.D. talked about spiritual fatherhood, spiritual fathers, and both of those have been amazing. If you missed one of those, I really encourage you to go back, listen, watch. It was just an incredible series so far. And then today, we're talking about spiritual moms, which is very fitting since it is, in fact, Mother's Day. And, you know, my heart is this for all of us today, that Scripture is really clear that men and women are made in the image of God, and that there's something that we carry even as mothers that reveals God's heart for all of us. So whether you are a man or a woman in the house, I pray that what you hear is God's heart for you, right, as his child. And I have to say, so I have four kids. Um, You've probably seen them in the parking lot. They probably greeted you when you pulled in today. Sophie is 15. Tate is 13. Kevin and S are just a few weeks shy of being 13. So we are like right on the verge of having four teenagers in our house. Um, But the thing is, is I actually didn't always know if I even wanted to be a mom. I had a great mother. I had a great grandmother. Like the women in my life were amazing. But what I associated with someone who's a good mom, like I just didn't connect to it. You know, like I'm not super sweet. I don't bake. I hate crafts. I always hated babysitting. Like, I'm like, I will pay you for me not to babysit. Like, it's like reverse. Like, I I just like sticky fingers. Like, it just wasn't my thing. And, And I really thought, like, I don't know if I can be a mom. Like, I don't really connect to this concept of what I perceive motherhood to be. Um, Obviously, I have four kids, so I changed my mind (laughs) along the way. But, you know, I I don't know if you felt this, but there was some some bumps in that transition to to motherhood. And when I got pregnant, I really did a lot of work with God in those places of insecurity with me. But there were so many times in parenting where those insecurities rose up. And I'm like, gosh, I knew I wasn't going to be a good mom. Like, when Sophie was in preschool and... um, it was pajama day, and so I got her these really cute pajamas and a teddy bear and, like, dropped her off and sent her in to pajama day at preschool. Only three minutes later, five minutes later, to get a phone call from the school, like, hey, um, Sophie's in the office. She's uncontrollably crying. She's really embarrassed because today's actually not pajama day. Pajama day is next week. So she's really embarrassed, and she would like you to come pick her up. Like, so then it's, you know, the walk of shame into the school to pick up my child who's in pajamas and take her home. And I'm like, now we have to move school. She's, like, so embarrassed, you know. And then fast forward to kindergarten. Like, it's that preview day before you go into kindergarten, and you're in your class, and the kids are, you know, are there with their parents acclimating and doing these different projects. And I realize these other kids know how to read. Like, the other kids in kindergarten know how to read. Sophie, no. I'm like, wait, these women have been teaching their kids to read? Like, 
Isn't this what school's for? Isn't this why I'm bringing her to kindergarten? Like, if I wanted to teach her, I would homeschool. Like, but no, I'm sending her to kindergarten to learn these things. So there are so many times where, like, I hit these hiccups and these insecurities would, would just come up in me. But I want to fast forward to third grade, when Sophie was in third grade. And I get this email from her teacher and it says, hey, you know, I don't know if you'll remember in elementary school for, for holidays, you, like, do all this work. Like, you make these whole packets and, like, pictures for mom and all these things that you take home. So I get this email from her teacher saying, hey, so the kids are bringing home their Mother's Day packets today. I really hope you don't mind. Sophie worked very hard, and she's really proud of it. And I was like, well... A strange email, like, great. So then Sophie gets home and brings this, like, huge stack. I have, like, some of the things she actually made that year, this huge stack of papers. And so I'm like, let's see it. You know, we're looking through it, and there's, you know, pictures, and then this one picture, and I'm like, wow, she's not going to be an artist because her spatial <laughs> stuff is off. Like, she and I are almost the same height in this picture. And in third grade, Sophie and I were not almost the same height. You know, and then you have, like, the cards, and it's my mother's favorite color is, and all those sorts of things, and, and it says, my mom's favorite thing to do is bake brownies for me, and I was like, that's so sweet, I, I never bake brownies, but <laughs> I, I love that you think that I like to bake brownies for you, you know, and then we come to this one, you guys, this is the piece de resistance of the Mother's Day packet of 2016, okay, so we get it, it's an essay, they all did this essay called A Very important, oh, sorry, a very important woman, and it's an essay about the moms, and so Sophie's is talking about um, this very important woman is so willing. She hosts the best sleepovers. She's funny. She makes me laugh when I'm sad. She goes on to talk about how this very important woman makes her feel like family, and Blair is a very important woman. <laughs> now, I don't know if you caught the detail at the beginning of the sermon, but my name is not Blair. My name is Liz. Blair is Sophie's best friend's mother and one of my best friends. And it dawns on me, all of this is about Blair. Blair loves to bake brownies. Blair is very short, so she is almost the same height as Sophie in third grade. Everything Sophie made that year for Mother's Day was for Blair not me. Nothing, nothing about me. Okay, all the insecurity rising, because Blair's like everything I'm not, right? Like, she's sweet, she, she's like crafty, I mean, all these things. And I, y'all, I wrestled. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, I was mad, I was hurt, I was like all the things. And finally, I get out of my self-pity enough to go and talk to Sophie and find out how in the world she had the audacity to make all of her Mother's Day things about a different woman. And, and I, you know, I'm talking to Sophie, and she goes, well, but, but Blair's like a mother to me. Shouldn't that be celebrated too? Well, yes, you know, but, like, still hurt my feelings. And I thought, okay, yeah, like, Sophie's on to something there. And she was genuinely, she, she just went on to talk about, like, and so-and-so's like a mother to me. And Miss Lucy's like a mother to me because she does X, Y, and Z. And Sophie, she didn't do any of this with this sense of to shame me or make me feel insecure or that it was not coming from a place that I was a bad mom. But she was attuned to this reality and this fact that the role of women in her life can be broad. 
that she can have spiritual mothers in her life that make a big impact and that that should actually be celebrated. It's not a threat. It's a place to be celebrated. And she understood that mothers aren't just biological. And, you know, I love Sophie, and she's very smart, but this did not start with Sophie. Sophie's not the first person to realize this truth, right? Have you ever heard the term godmother and godfather? Yeah, so the first century church actually recognized, hey, we have people who, who need a broader impartation. You know, some people, maybe they don't have physical mothers anymore, or they don't have women and men who can speak into their lives as, as spiritual parents, and so they take on this role of a godmother and godfather. But actually, it's all throughout Scripture. This idea is all throughout Scripture that, you know, there's women that are celebrated for being spiritual mothers. Um, especially in the Old Testament, we're going to look at a um, passage of Scripture actually through the story of Deborah. I don't know if you guys have studied Deborah or know much about Deborah, but in Judges 4 and 5, um, this is where we find her story. And there's a lot about Deborah that we can learn, or, or there's a lot that Deborah shows us about what being a mother is about. And let me give you a little background before we jump into this story. So Deborah is a judge in Israel. So a judge back then wasn't what we think of as a judge necessarily today. A judge would have been a political leader. They are a spiritual leader. They do solve disputes, which sounds a lot like a mother spending her time solving problems for other people. But they also um, were leaders in the army. They would help oversee the general. So it was a really important um, important role in ancient Israel. And it's not really clear how Deborah got that role. We don't really know that. But what we do know is that she is one of the top dogs in, um, in her nation, legally and spiritually. So I want to read how Deborah describes this situation um, here in Judges 5, 6. We see, she says, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned, Travelers took to winding paths, and village life ceased. Now, I want to break that down just a little bit for us. It says, in the days of Shamgar, which is someone from the times when the Philistines um, and the Israelites were fighting. It was 20 years prior to the days of Jael, which is current times. So in that 20-year period, we learn, hey, Israel has been under oppression for 20 years. We have been in decline as a nation for 20 years, is what Deborah's saying. Travelers, oh, the highways were abandoned. There's no trade. She's talking about the economic state of her nation. There's no trade. If the highways are abandoned, it means there's no merchants. There's no caravans. The economy is essentially nil. It's shut down. Travelers took to winding paths. So historically, winding paths would be where robbers and, you know, criminals would hide out. Like, no one wanted to go on the winding paths. You would take the open road because the winding paths are dangerous. They're physically dangerous. They're, like, violent. And so we also see just that there's crime rampant. And she talks about it in other passages as well. Like, it is just a violent time. If you're going on the winding path, then that's saying something about the state of the open road. And then also village life ceased. The social life of Israel was in decline. Farms were abandoned. Families had to evacuate and flee. And Deborah is looking at this situation saying, okay, the life, the economic, the social, and the familial life is threatened in Israel. And I want to read, what does this prophet, this judge, this 
leader of Israel's army do about it? I want to read what she says she does. Village life ceased. It ceased in Israel until I, Deborah, arose, arose a mother in Israel. Not a prophet in Israel, not a judge in Israel, not a I, Deborah, arose, a leader of the armies in Israel. She says, no, I arose as a mother in Israel. And in, in this book of Judges, we have no mention that Deborah actually has children. She's referring to a spiritual motherhood. So why, if she has all these other huge roles and huge places of authority, does she say, hey, I'm arising as a mother in my nation? And I think it's because Deborah knew that sometimes what the world needs is a mom. And she recognized that what Israel needs in this place is a mom. And Deborah is acknowledging that, hey, everything, everything we're going to see that she does here in a few minutes is done from the motivation of a mother. When life was threatened in Israel, a mother needed to step in. And that's because we see right here, Deborah is showing us the very first attribute we're going to look at today, that mothers protect life. Mothers protect Life. And we all know in a physical sense, a woman's body is designed to carry and nurture and, and steward life within her. And I want to say, if you are a woman in the room who has had trouble getting pregnant or caring full term, this, that has no bearing on your ability and your calling to protect and preserve life. In fact, I think sometimes women who deal with infertility are the greatest protectors of life. They're the fiercest protectors of life because of their experience. But women protect life, and not just physically, but there's actually a psychological component to that truth that women protect life. So there's actually something that happens in a woman's brain. It's called maternal motivation. When a woman gets pregnant, their brain actually changes. Like, it physically changes. The gray matter concentrates, the amygdala expands, and the capacity that she has to protect and preserve her young is increased. She's heightenedly aware of any dangers. She has a, a greater capacity to protect physically even if necessary. And the cool thing is that every female on the planet is hardwired to be able to have an increased capacity to care for young and to care for people. And Deborah knew this. That's why she said, hey, I'm going to raise up as a mother, and I'm going to protect the life of my nation. Mothers protect life. I want to enter back into Judges 4 here. Now, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapido, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abram, I feel like I'm reading a Star Wars script here with all the names, but from Kadesh in Naphtali and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel commands you, go and take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. And Barak said to her, if you go with me, I'll go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly, I'll go with you, said Deborah. And here we see the second attribute of mothers. Mothers protect life, and mothers are present. 
It's often called the ministry of presence. Chaplains would say they have the ministry of presence, that they are physically present with people. See, Barack's not saying, hey, I need you to do this for me. I need you to go get me more supplies. He's not asking that of her. He's saying, will you go with me? Will you just be with me? And there's something about a human need to have someone present. I mean, I even think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane before the crucifixion when he's out there praying. And what is the one thing we see him ask of the people around him? He asks his disciples, will you come with me? Will you be with me? Humans, when they are in distress of any kind, they don't want to be alone. And mothers are present. And Deborah, by saying, I'll be present, she lent Barak her strength by being present with him. But there's a second type of presence that we see in this story. There's a physical presence that she went with him, but then there's an emotional presence that she offers. See, in Judges 5.9, it says, this is Deborah talking, and she's sharing. Um, Judges 4 is the story, and Judges 5 is, is called Deborah's song. It's her talking about just her perspective of what's going on. And this is what she says. She says, my heart is with Israel's princes, with the willing volunteers among the people. Now, when I first read that, I, I honestly kind of skimmed it. I didn't, like, pay a ton of attention to it. Um, but, then, but then it jumped out at me a little later on in the week. So when I was preparing for this message, I did a lot of research and looked at things. And I came across this interesting study um, that had spanned about a decade, and it started because um, someone noticed that if you hand a woman a child, she typically holds it on the left side of her body. Like eight out of ten women will hold a baby on the left side. So they're like, hey, is this really, is this true that women tend to hold a baby on the left side? So they do this huge, like, international research project, right? So it doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. They looked at um, ethnicities, cultures. I mean, you had this study was done and completed all around the world on all the continents where we have families. And they look to see, like, is this true? Is it because they're right-handed? Like, what is the genesis of why? And they found that it's really true that no matter where you are in the world, 80% of women are going to hold a baby on the left-hand side. But what was really crazy is as they were doing this study, they found that Almost 100% of the time, no matter where you are in the world, if a child is in distress, if they're tired, if they're crying, if they're fearful, if they're in distress in any way and a woman picks them up, even if she picks them up on the right side, they will move to the left side. Like the baby will move, the child will move from the right to the left almost 100% of the time. And it absolutely perplexes scientists. They're like, what in the world? What is going on? And they, they looked into it and they studied it to figure out why is this phenomenon happening? And you know what it was? You know why a child in distress will pretty much always move to the left side of the woman? It's where her heart is. It's where her heart is. And there's something innately comforting of hearing and being in close proximity to the mother's heartbeat. And I think Deborah, Deborah, I think, knew this, that not just physically, but there's something 
so comforting about being in close proximity to a mother's heart, to hearing it, to hearing the mother's heartbeat. And she knew that the nation didn't need just her physical presence, but it needed her emotional presence, the emotional availability of a mother to be there. It comforts. Mothers protect life, and mothers are present physically and emotionally. I want to keep reading here in Judges 4.11. It says, Now Herber the Kenite had left the other Kenites and the descendants of Hoab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree, I don't know how to say it, but in that place, um, and when they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from the other place to the Kishon River and all his men and 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And at Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Harasheth Higanum, and all of Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Now, do you remember earlier in the story when Barak told Deborah that I will only go if you go. And we don't really know why he said that. Um, You know, was it that he was afraid? Was he insecure? I mean, he's a grown man. He's a general. He should be able to go and do his job without needing Deborah to go with him. But for whatever reason, he was having a bad day, He was insecure, fearful. We don't know. He needed her with him. And when it's time for him to act again, Deborah seems to spot some hesitation in him. And she doesn't belittle him for it. She encourages him. She sees, hey, he's having trouble. And when you look at that that passage in the original language, that go, isn't God... You know, isn't he with you this day? He's going to deliver him into your hand. The actual language and the words used in the Hebrew, they're very tender. It's not a go, you know, an annoyed go. It's a, hey, go. She has a tenderness towards him. And here's the thing about mothers, any mother. They know the most embarrassing things about you, right? A mother knows when you stopped wetting the bed. A mother knows when she had to pick you up from, you know, something because you got kicked out. She knows when you fail your test, the time that you um, really wanted to get asked to the dance and no one asked you. She knows the moral failures. Like, she knows those really vulnerable moments in your life. And Deborah knows Barack's really vulnerable moments in, the, in her life. And honestly, guys, this is like the crux of the battle. There's 9,000 iron chariots that are about to, to wage war, and she has a general here who's hesitating. And it's human nature to just be, like, frustrated at him and, and to give the job to someone else. It's human nature to be frustrated and give up, but that's not a mother's nature. 
And that wasn't Deborah's response to Barak. Her response was to encourage. She didn't expose him. And she knew that if she had traded out generals, it would have exposed Barak. But what did she do? She encouraged him. And I like to just, I guess in my brain, when this plays out, it's almost like I see her kind of bending down and like cupping his face and saying, hey, look at me, look at me. Go. You can do this. You have what it takes. God is on your side. She's reassuring him. She's reminding him and calling him out. She's not exposing and shaming because that's not what a mother does. A mother encourages and reassures. And, you know, I've been in ministry, I'm 40 years old. I've been in ministry my entire adult life. And there is a real scar that gets left when someone's mother doesn't respond this way, you know? I think we can, some of us in this room even have scars of showing up to a mother or a mother figure and and saying, hey, I'm struggling. I'm insecure. I don't think I have what it takes. And feeling weak and vulnerable and being met with ridicule or shame, that can leave a mark. But on the flip side, when a mother looks at someone who's facing a vulnerability and says, no, go, you've got this. You can do this. That gets down into their bones right? That shapes their identity in a significant way. And, and Deborah knew that. And that's why she addressed Barack the way that she did, not out of frustration that he was struggling, not out of frustration that he was having a weak moment or maybe wasn't living up to what, what he should have been doing, but out of absolute compassion and encouragement. Because to encourage means the action of giving someone support, confidence, or hope. Mothers protect. Mothers are present. And mothers encourage. I want to pick this story back up in Judges 4.18 here for a moment. It says, Sisera saw, well, th- this is kind of the background of where we're about to pick it up. So Sisera is the only one who survives the fight, right? All his other men are dead. He escapes on foot. And he runs away to this group and this cluster of tents that belong to the Kinnitite. So the Kinnitite are like the Switzerland of nomadic people in the Fertile Crescent. They're not Israelites. They're not his direct enemies. But, but they are just kind of able to be positioned anywhere. So they're actually positioned close to the fighting because they're not in direct, um, like, they're not being attacked personally. So he runs there, and that's where we pick up the stories. He shows up at this tent of a woman named Jael. And this is what we see starting in verse 8. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. And she opened a skin of milk. She gave him a drink and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone in there, say no. But Jael, Herber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) So I I actually almost omitted this part of the story out because I was like, that's weird, it's gruesome, it's like really not very Mother's Day-y that this woman who like is initially showing hospitality and like come in, let me give you milk, have a seat, and then I'm going to murder you 
as you're sleeping. Like, it's a really weird ending to a Mother's Day message, right? I mean, the first point was mothers protect life. Like, this is a little contradictory. But, but you know, the reason I didn't is because the more I thought about it, and I actually added it back in yesterday, because as I thought about it, I was like, actually, no. Because I think what we see here is a very important fourth point, that mothers protect life, mothers are present, mothers encourage, but mothers raise up other mothers. You see, JL and Deborah are very different. They're different ethnicities, they're different um, jobs. You know, Deborah's a judge. JL says she's a woman of the tents. She's more of like a homemaker. They, they have not very much in common. And when we read the story and we look at like the timeline even of what we studied and, and we see what Deborah does and how she's responding to the people in her, in her care and in her charge, you know, we read that as if it's like in a, in a movie sequence and it's fast and it's happening. But I mean, think about it. How long is it going to take nine all of these chariots to assemble and these like thousands of men, right? This would have been happening. Judges 4 would have been playing out over a series of months. So JL would have seen Deborah over a series of months and she would have seen how Deborah rose up a mother in Israel, how she rose up in the armies, how she encouraged Barak, how she, she took hold of her nation as a spiritual mother. JL would have seen that. And I believe it called into something. It called out to Jael in a significant way. So then when the, the enemy approached her territory and the people around her were threatened, she rose up like a mother. And that's what mothers do. They impart values. They impart lessons. It's a discipleship in a way. That these are the type of women we are. That we are spiritual mothers. That we don't sit by while the world around us is threatened. But we rise up. As mothers in our nation, we rise up, no matter who we are, what job we have, what role we have, because we understand the identity and the design of God for us as spiritual mothers. Mothers protect life, mothers are present, mothers encourage, and mothers raise up other mothers. And you know, a lot of time has passed since Judges 4 was written. A lot of time has passed, thousands of years, a lot of history, and a lot has changed, but also not a lot has changed. Because I think if Deborah was here today and she was walking through downtown Austin and seeing the business people walking by, the homeless on the street, I think she would say, this place needs a mother. I think if Deborah was walking through UT campus, watching the students as they go between classes, I think she'd say, this place needs a mother. The domain, the people working there, they need a mother. People working in legislation, our police officers, wherever she went in Austin, I think she would say, this city needs a mother. And I really sense that, that that's an invitation for us this morning. You guys can go ahead and stand up. I really sense that that is an invitation to the women of this house, 
today and this morning, that there's an opportunity for you to step out and say, I'll be a mother. I'll be a mother in my school. Doesn't matter if you're in sixth grade, you can be a mother. Doesn't matter if you are a businesswoman to be a mother in your office. There's an invitation to be a spiritual mother in your home, to be a mother in this house, in our church. Our city needs mothers. And that's the invitation I'm really feeling from God this morning for us, is saying, hey, will you, women of Antioch Austin, will you be mothers? Will you arise just like Deborah to be a mother in Austin? to be a mother in Round Rock, to be a mother in Buda, in Cedar Park, wherever you live. And I'm just gonna do a really bold ask that if you are saying, you know what, I'm willing, I'm willing to be a mother in my sphere, I'm willing to be a spiritual mother in my work, in my family, would you just go ahead and come up to the front? If you would say, hey, I'm willing to be a mother here in this place. Because I just wanna pray over us I feel like this series has just held a really significance for our church. And I really believe he wants to release spiritual mothers throughout our city to protect, to be present, to encourage, and then to raise up and disciple other spiritual mothers. So if you're up here, women, just open your hands. And God, we, we just say, here we are today, your daughters. Lord, and we are answering the call to raise up and to arise as spiritual mothers in our city, in Austin. God, and I ask for an increased capacity in each one of these women to protect life, to be present physically and emotionally, to encourage, to have words. Holy Spirit, I ask for just an impartation of the ability to have a prophetic encouragement for the people around them. Lord, to know how to speak to the heart, how to speak courage and affirmation to the hearts of the people around them. Lord, and for a, um, an ability to disciple another generation of spiritual mothers. Lord, I ask that in 20 years when we look around Austin, we'd say, wow, this is a rich city of spiritual mothers. That there would be generation upon generation of women discipled on how to live on mission for you, how to embrace and contend for those around us. Lord, how to live out the unique calling that we have as women to be spiritual mothers in our city. And as we just go into worship, I just encourage you to keep that position before the Lord, that willingness response. We love you, Jesus. Amen.